0: The two people to whom I owe it all who taught me how to love and how to live. My sponsor in life, I'd like you to meet him, Clinton T. Duffy. Bill
1: says follow that if you can. That'll shake anybody. I think right at this moment I should have you meet the girl, the woman, my sweetheart that Bill was talking about, Gladys. As Bill indicated to you briefly, I was born on the prison grounds at San Quentin in California. My father was a prison guard. Later on, he became steward. My father-in-law, Ann Gladys, and her mother came to San Quentin when she was 10 months old. He was a prison guard. Her grandfather worked there before that and at that time. And both our dads had 35 years service before they died in service so you see, living on the prison grounds, later on working inside the prison, and rubbing elbows with men, and there were some women there up until the mid-30s, it was very, very apparent that I would become acquainted with the ways and the life of men in gray, oh yes, men in stripes, when we were children, and how they reacted and something about their lives and their background. It was a very, very interesting young life growing up in the prison grounds, having prisoners working in our home, around the gardens in which our homes were located, around the school grounds on the prison reservation where we went to the grade school as janitors and as gardeners, on the streets in which the kids played, prisoners at all times walking back and forth to their jobs and so forth. And so that was the atmosphere in which we were raised, in which we lived almost all of our lives. I went to work at San Quentin Prison in 1929, became warden in 1940, was elevated to the Adult Authority, the parole board, in 1952, and retired in 1962 from the payroll. I've been working hard ever since on two or three things. One, the abolition of the death penalty, and number two, the seven-step program, which you'll, I'll tell you some more about tonight. And number three, Alcohol and the Convict. I'm going to Des Moines next week, a week from Friday. Judge Thompson has a seminar there where my title is Alcohol and the Convict. I've spoken in penitentiaries, many AA meetings, and uh, I am not an alcoholic. Both Mrs. Duffy and I do take the kind of drinks that you wish you could take. (laughs) One or two. So how did I become interested in alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, or the problems of the men behind the walls? It started way, way back when I was a child. I used to hear the man who was the servant in our home, or the gardener around our home, or the prisoner on the street or around the school grounds say alcohol made me do this the bottle made me commit this crime booze made me come to prison you know even as a child I wondered if that were true did alcohol make them do this well as I grew up these things continued men would go out and they say alcohol made me commit another crime and I'm back again because alcohol made me do it Big question mark, get a little bit larger. Then, gradually, I went to work at San Quentin in 1929.
0: There I became acquainted with the men inside the walls, as well as those outside, with their loved ones, with their mother, their father, their wives,
1: their children, their relatives, their friends. And there, these people from the outside would say, Jimmy was made to do this because alcohol made him commit this crime, no matter what the crime was. It didn't make any difference. Or the booze put him in prison, and alcohol made him commit a serious crime or even steal an automobile, things of that nature. Again, I was uh, elevated then from the secretary to the warden to secretary to the parole board. In the meantime, I talked with hundreds, just thousands of prisoners. They were still saying the same thing. That alcohol made them do this. And the question mark began to get a little bit larger. Did alcohol make them do this? Then I went on the parole board as a member, a secretary to the parole board, a member of their staff, and I read the records and I prepared the records for the board to act on in hearing the cases whether these men should be released on parole or discharge or remain in prison. That's the function of a paroling authority. And there again, in the record. It would be that alcohol made me do this, the booze made me do this, the bottle put me in prison, and it was said by the men as they appeared in front of the parole board members, exactly those same words I heard as a child in uh, in and around our homes. So I wondered about this. So I made a survey as a secretary to the parole board of one year's cases that came before the board because no one made a repeat appearance in a year. So I did not have a double up on any appearances. And I found that 65% of all of the men who came to San Quentin prison either were alcoholics or alcohol played a part in the commission of their offense. They got themselves hopped up, high, encouraged, or whatever you want to call it, on the use of alcohol, and then went out and committed their offense because they had a little bit of push behind them. Or they were complete alcoholics and the offense happened so I wondered about this big question mark that was growing. By then, I was beginning to believe that alcohol did not make them do anything. Alcohol did not make you do anything. I'm talking. You can have your own opinion on this, this is the way I feel. Alcohol did not make these men commit a crime. It did not make them forge a check, rob a bank, kill somebody, rape somebody. What it did is, was took the brakes off of the individual and his own individual problems. One person will do something and another one will do something else. I use an example. You can put a big table right here in the middle of this room and put a Texas fifth. You know what a Texas fifth is? Everything's bigger in Texas. A whiskey right there in the middle, and six of us around there and we drink that bottle and we all get drunk. I'm gonna sing a song. Bill Sands is going to fall down flat in his face and start crying. The next guy's going to go home. The next one's going to go out and rob a bank. This guy wants to go get a gal. Why don't they all do the same thing if booze, alcohol made them do it? It took off the brakes of me, so I get shouting and singing. It took off the brakes of the guy that wants to go out and rob a bank or punch a cop in the nose or something like that. And so it's an individual thing. It doesn't make you do anything. Without alcohol, and you know it so well, you have those brakes on, and these things are not happening to you because you're not confused by somebody taking off the brakes or something taking off the brakes like alcohol. And so what could be done for these poor, unfortunate people that everyone in the country, all over the United States, all over the world, in San Quentin, everywhere else, was saying... They're nothing but a bunch of no-good drunken so-and-sos. And And they're here because they're a bunch of drunks, and this is exactly where they belong. Again, I couldn't quite go for that. So I was made warden from the Secretary of the Pro Board in 1940. I'd heard about Alcoholics Anonymous, read about it in the newspapers. In 1940, some of you are more up on dates than I am. It was only in effect about seven or eight years, possibly, When Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob started it, and uh, about five years, the gentleman said. So in 1940, I asked the local chapters, San Francisco, Richmond, Oakland, San Rafael, San Mateo, if you know California and the Bay Area, you know those areas well, to come over there to send one representative. And they came, and we sat down in my office, and I told them the story of alcohol behind the walls, of the men who come to prison because they drank too much or they're completely alcoholics and nobody cared about them. What could be done? And they listened. And they listened with a bigger question mark than I had about what I told you about a minute ago. And they wondered if they could participate. Could they, alcoholics, running a program in the communities, help men behind bars? Never been thought of before. Never heard of it. Never been done. And one of them said to me, uh, Warren T. from Richmond, California, he said, Warden, if we come into San Quentin and we put in an AA program here with your approval, just what do you expect? And I said, gentlemen, if you change one man into a better person and he goes out with sobriety and stays sober, that's good enough for me. One person. They said, that's good enough for us, let's go. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, all hell broke loose at San Quentin. (laughs) Bringing drunks into a prison to work with other drunks? Never heard of. Seven or eight or ten of the officers resigned. They thought the lid was going to blow off immediately. of the whole prison, it would be just a terrible situation. And they came to me in groups and said, you can't do this to us. You've made many other changes here. You've put in schools, you've put in vocational training classification you put in all kinds of activities for the benefit of the men. But this is so far out of line we can't go for it. I said, we are going to try it. And you know, in 12 years, absolutely nothing happened behind those walls and AA meetings once a week and sometimes oftener, committee meetings and the like. Why? Because you are working with men with problems and trying to help them. Oh, it started AA about, at San Quentin, about, uh, maybe it was going on for about seven or eight months. And then I put out a memorandum to the staff that we're going to bring the women in. And again, the lead blew off. We're going to have all kinds of insults. They're going to be pinching them and attacking tackling them, and everything else is going to be happening to these women.
0: Yeah! <laughs> he was there. If he'd have
1: pinched any of them, I'd have socked his head in. Anyhow... <laughs> Anyhow, uh, what happened there, more officers resigned, two or three more came in, they said, we just can't go for this one, this one's out of line completely, and so I said, well, it happens outside, you open meetings, tonight's an open meeting, the women come in, let's give it a try, these men have not seen very many women, Mrs. Duffy had been walking in the yard, once in a while I'd take a visitor or two or three through, and uh, that's about it, prior to that, none. And you know, in those 12 years, absolutely nothing happened with the women coming in. They were seated exactly like the women are here today, among men, with numbers right alongside of them, all over, not on any one side, looking at each other like of men in, in cages and freaks and so forth, and strangers, talking with the men, participating up here at the rostrum. An inmate would tell his story, make his pitch, I meant to say, and a man from the outside would make his pitch, another inmate and a woman from the outside would give her, her story, and it was a tremendous afternoon, Sundays when no men were working, particularly in the shops and departments, and we had to break it up in time for the men to go to count in the evening, and these men would and women would stay there and help men behind the walls with their alcoholic problem. And so uh, we'd leave the education department where we held the meetings, and as I was walking out with the outside visitors, invariably I'd say to them, going through the garden, the garden beautiful as the inmates call it, I'd say, gentlemen and ladies, if it was that day, you surely have done a whole lot and left a whole lot for these men to think about and work on. And invariably they would say, Warden, no, we are taking home more with us than we ever thought of leaving because they on the outside were gaining by coming on the inside and helping the men. Mistakes were made. Have you made mistakes in your AA programs in starting them? Of course you have. We had the 12 steps, as you know. 12 steps to sobriety. And all at once, I made the decision. I was a warden, the guy that can make the decisions. I said, these men know their 12 steps they are regular in attendance, they haven't missed more than two meetings in any six months or whatever it might be, then they are really gone places. And we gave them a diploma, we graduated them from Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: (laughs) I signed the diploma. Anybody here
1: from San Quentin has one of those, I'll buy it back.
0: <laughs> but you learn.
1: We also, I also learned, too, and our psychiatrist was at fault on this. Sometimes they're a little bit hard to convince away, a little bit off on the edge of psychiatry. He said, in order to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, Warden, you have to have a person that has been down in the gutter completely in the gutter, fall flat in his face, completely gone. Elsie's not an... <laughs> and that didn't work very long. And today, and for many, many years, a person with a problem of drinking goes to Alcoholics Anonymous in prison. A person who is an excessive drinker and an alcoholic, and they're being helped regularly. Well, when the men go out, they can go out to a chapter... Because when they do go out, the local man, who is a sponsor inside the walls, appointed by the warden. I had a Negro uh, sociologist who was one time the sponsor, another time Doug Short, who was a psychologist, was a sponsor. Civilian clothed men, and no guards, no uniformed guards in the AA meetings at all, at any time. Because this was a meeting helping people. You didn't want controls by way of uniform and force. And so they helped men, too. And then when they would go out, they would write to the local AA chapters and say that Bill Jones is coming to Modesto, California, or wherever he might be. Look him up. Meet him at the bus or at the airplane or at the train. Give him a welcome AA hand and show him that you do care. And that helped a lot of them in their contact with AA on the outside. And so when I address meetings like this, particularly around San Francisco or in the western states generally, and sometimes as far east as here in Texas, I meet men who have been in prison in San Quentin that were in AA and are sober yet today. As an example, in San Francisco, where I was the annual Christmas speaker until uh, uh, Jack Irving died, and Gladys and I went to Europe. We are gone for over a year, away from the coast for over a year. i invariably have men come up after my talk and say, Warden, here's my card. I've been out now for 17 years. You remember me? And I did. And he says, I learned AA in San Quentin. I've been practicing it all these 17 years on the outside. I have a business of my own. Here's my card. Here's a picture of my wife, my house, my dog, my automobile. My kids, I'm sober today because I learned and I'm continuing with AA inside and on the outside. And then a man came to me in that same very meeting and he said, Warden, I've been out seven hours from Vacaville Medical Facility, a part of the prison system. I am here tonight because I learned about AA in prison and I want to follow through with it. Eight or ten or twelve others in between seven hours seven years, seven months, and 17 years, they do get a whole lot out of it by their attendance in prison. And it does you a lot of good when you know that the efforts that you started have uh, borne a lot of fruit throughout the whole world of lockups having AA behind their walls. Because right here in your other book, AA Comes of Age, you can find on a certain page, and I don't say this, Bill Wilson says it, and you know Bill Wilson. He said that Clinton Duffy, the warden of San Quentin Prison, started the first Alcoholics Anonymous program behind any lockup of any kind in the world in 1942 at San Quentin Prison. And today there are over 580. The last figure I had was 580. I imagine there are around 600 now of these kinds of programs in lockup areas throughout the United States that are doing an awful lot of good for people behind the walls and behind the jails. So you in working with the H and I committee, how many know what the H and I committees are? Hospital and institutions. If you have a hospital and institution committee, keep it up. The men in your jails need you. The women in your jails need you. In your reformatories, in your prisons and in your hospital. Need your committees to work with them and help them to their sobriety. Well, just one other word about meeting people, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the seven-step program. You know, once in a while, Gladys and I will be walking down the street, San Francisco, Los Angeles, name it, and somebody will come up to me and they'll uh, put his hand out and say, Warden Duffy, do you remember me? How many times have people said that to you and you wish you'd say, I'm Bill Smith, do you remember who I am or something like that? But they say, oh, do you remember me? And I'll scratch my head a little bit, literally, and I'll look at him and I'll say, now, let's see. Is he the president of the bank or did he serve time at San Quentin?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Usually, it was San Quentin. Some jerk in a Rotary Club meeting, and I belong to Rotary, he said, both.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Bill Sands told you what the seven steps are to seven-step foundation. And uh, I had been wondering what else could be done for prisoners besides what we had accomplished in our California prisons with trade training, academic training, religious training, sideline activities, Alcoholics Anonymous, work, counseling therapy, psychiatry. What else could we do to reduce the recidivism, return to crime, and return to prison? Because President Johnson recently said that over 80 percent of all of the men and women who go out of our penitentiaries return to crime, and that is a shocking figure. That is one that just shocks anybody that they gives it a thought, and particularly those of us who have worked with men. Where have we failed, or what else could we have done? And so, this car—I mean, this fellow. Said, called me on the telephone from Kansas City, Kansas. Gus and I were having dinner in our home. And he, naturally, the greetings and mom and so forth, we finally got down to what he was calling about. He says, I have an idea. He's out of prison now and a successful ex-convict for about 22 years. 20 years at least. 20, 21 years. And he's doing real well. He told you about his background. He says, I have an idea why I think I can reduce Recidivism, return to crime, and return to prison. And he said, I want to come to California, my wife and I. This was a pony he was talking about. And I want to tell you about my idea and see if it's workable in your mind. And so they drove to San Francisco. And the warden and his wife and the ex-convict and his wife had dinner in a very nice restaurant in San Francisco. And by the way, he paid the bill. <laughs>
0: you did. <laughs>
1: and uh, you know, I've, been, I've been been, feeding him for so long and uh, it was his turn now so. anyhow he came up with this idea peers working with their peers men who have had trouble have been in the same seat that they are sitting in today committed the same crimes if not worse possibly can help these men to a way of truth and honesty on the outside it sounded good How are they going to do that? How could they work this program? He said, we will get a corps of men inside the prison, which he told you about, successful prisoners, hardcore convicts as a committee who do not have a release date, and they will select others, and they will also encourage men who have 120 days or less to serve before their release date, parole or discharge, to attend these meetings. Encourage them. They don't have to come. And so that happened at Lansing. I went back and looked at it. I saw it was working there and that these people listen to somebody who has lived the life that they live. You and your seven step, isn't the seventh step you do your seven step work or when you go out and talk? The 12 step work when you got, you get over to the alcoholic a lot better than I ever could. ...to an alcoholic that's sick and lying on the floor in his home or in a jail or somewhere... ...because you have lived the life. And that's exactly what the seven-step program... ...the ex-convict successful lived the life. He's telling them about it. The alcoholic lived the life. He's sober today. He's helping the man who is not sober. And so it's working. With the permission of the warden in any state... ...and the director of corrections in the state... ...the governor, the sheriff, the chief of police... ...because you have chapters in the cities... And then you help the men inside to get ready to come on the outside in addition to what is being done, like AA, counseling, therapy, education, training, everything you can think of. This is another piece of string in that great big rope that's holding the big ship. And so when the men do come out, they're met at the gate by an ex-convict. The program on the inside is worked by the convicts and ex-convicts, not civilians. People like you in business are brought in as Square Johns and Square Janes in some of the prisons because you can help them on the outside as sponsors or possibly give them a job or even get you to know about the 7-step program and how it works. And so when the men do go out, they're met at the gate by one of the men who's on the program, an ex, with the permission of the warden. They're brought to the local chapter in the city, like San Francisco, use that as an example. Then they are given a little bit of indoctrination as to what the 7-step is on the outside, a little help in getting a place to live away from Skid Row, a job if need, and also encourage them to come to the weekly counseling meetings in the community, which is a community living type of counseling. And so there again, it works. But one of the biggest areas of the program of 7-step is the juvenile working with these kids, before it happens and while it has happened and before it gets to the penitentiary stage. And so young men, older men, men who have served time, have groups of children, youngsters, young boys, young girls, in the community that are referred to them by the juvenile courts, by the judges, the district attorney, the police, the sheriff, the home, the school, and they come in off the streets wanting to get help from men who have served time and where they are headed for. And many, many youngsters today are being guided by the ex-convicts who know that this this isn't the way to go because they went that way. As Bill said, they invented the game that you are trying to play today, you youngsters, and it doesn't work, and you better listen, and you better get yourself on a straight and narrow. So the Seven Step Foundation is working. It's a very, very fine movement to help you in the community. Why does it help you? Because you are the victims of crime. You are the victims of delinquency. You are the victims of everything that happens when people go off on a wrong tangent. And they also are the victims themselves. So you're saving individuals and you're saving you, the community. Not only are you saving money, but you're saving human lives. But it does save you a whole lot of money in your pocketbook on your taxes, to run jails and prisons and reformatories, every one person that is helped. In the state of California, it costs $2,600 to keep one man in prison for one year. It costs $8,000 from a time of arrest, conviction, confinement, and release. You save one, you're saving $8,000. You save a hundred, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are you saving? Tremendous program of helping people with problems. Why are we here in Lubbock this week, Bill and I, and Gladys? I think Bill Sand should tell you a little bit about why we are here in Lubbock and what's going to be happening within the next two weeks right here in your community. Bill?
0: <laughs> Folks are going to get the idea that we've worked together before, <laughs> like bookends, you know. As a matter of fact, we had this program this afternoon, and somebody said to Mom Duffy... These men have two hours to fill. How are they going to do that? And She says it takes them that long to say hello. You know? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why we're here in Lubbock. By the way, if we've left anything with you tonight, maybe if we've just inspired one person here, uh, maintain their sobriety for another twenty-four hours, another twenty-four months. You made our time well spent in coming here. If maybe we've read anybody's mail or helped anybody, I'll tell you what you can do to help us and have a ball while you're doing it. On April the 13th, that's the Saturday before Easter, Saturday night, April 13th, in the Lubbock Coliseum, we're going to do a benefit show sponsored by the Lubbock Lions Club on behalf of the Seven Step Foundation. The Lubbock Lions Club is going to use their share of the money to fulfill our commitment for handicapped